The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning. It's good to see you all out here braving the cold weather. It's a delight. All of our services actually have been rather packed. And I was saying, this is really pretty good for Austin, 20 degree weather, and everyone's coming out to church. So we please pray with me. Father, thank you for coming to your word and hearing your word. We do pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us, that we might be changed by hearing your word and that you pour your spirit out upon me as I speak your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, you remember the story of the Thai soccer team that got trapped in a cave from 2018? I don't know if you remember the story or not, but there was 12 boys on a soccer team and their coach, and after they had practice on a field in Thailand, there was a cave that was sort of near their practice field, and so they decided to do some spontaneous spelunking, which is probably never a good idea, but they did it anyway, and they went into the cave, and they were in there about an hour, and while they were inside the cave, a giant monsoon rainstorm came and dumped a bunch of water and sealed off by flooding the entrance to the cave, so they couldn't get back anymore. When they realized they couldn't get back, they had one flashlight among the 13 of them, and they started wandering around in the cave trying to find another way out, and of course, the further they went in the dark in the cave, the more lost they got. These boys and their coach ended up being inside that cave for two weeks without any water, with any food. They were drinking water that was dripping down off the rocks. And they couldn't turn their flashlight on very often because they didn't want to run out of the battery. So they were pretty much for two weeks alone together in the absolute dark. And then someone heard a voice and they turned the flashlight on thinking, was this a delusion or are we hearing something? And they went over to where the voice was, and it was a British SEAL team diver who had come and had found them. But that was just the beginning of their rescue, because the more rain was on the way, and the only way to get the boys out of the cave was to go back through the entrance, which was a two-hour underwater journey, in which many times these boys were vertical and upside down, going through what the divers described as letterbox openings to bring these kids through to bring them out and out of the cave. 
It's a remarkable story, and all the boys, including their coach, were rescued and came out of the cave. And I thought about that story from our Old Testament passage here in 1 Samuel chapter 3 because the story here in 1 Samuel is a story about darkness. Of course, Samuel's at night in the dark, but more than that, as I'll explain in a moment. And then, of course, a voice and being called and then being pushed into a new life-changing direction. So just three simple things from this passage this morning. The dark, the call, and change. Very simple. The dark, the call, and change. First is the dark. Our Old Testament passage here is at pains to emphasize that there's darkness in the land of Israel, a spiritual darkness. Remember the context of Samuel. It comes right after the book of Judges. We studied the book of Judges about a year ago. And what was the constant refrain from the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And from the beginning of Judges to the end, it's one long narrative cycle about the nation of Israel just basically spiraling down the drain. And each generation follows God and listens to God less and less. And there's increasingly more and more violence and brokenness and chaos. Until we get here to Samuel chapter 3, and this is sort of the dark before the dawn. Eli, in this passage, is the high priest in Israel at the time, and he had been the high priest and a judge for about 40, 50 years. And his sons, who were also priests in the tabernacle, they are unbelievably corrupt. They're stealing from worshipers who come to the tabernacle to worship. They're mooching off the sacrifices that were meant for God and eating those things. They're desecrating the tabernacle and doing things they should not be doing on the grounds of the tabernacle and in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle itself had become a disgrace. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and God is going to judge his sons and Eli for all of this. And in verse 1 and verse 2 here of chapter 3, it says that the word of God was rare. In other words, God's voice, God's way, they were not prized, they were not wanted, they were not listened to at all. It also says there were no frequent visions, which is more than just saying, don't just think mystical here. It's also saying that there was no leadership. There was no discernment. There was no direction in the nation of Israel and among the people. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And like Proverbs 29, 18 says, people perish without a vision. And Eli, the high priest, who's the symbolic spiritual heart of Israel, what do we find out about him? Well, we find out in verse 2 that he's going blind. And we can't just read this as a physical description of what's going on with Eli. He's going blind, but it's also a symbolic representation of what's going on in Israel as well. Eli had no vision. It's a spiritual condition as well. The spiritual heart of Israel is diseased. The time is dark. The nation is, in other words, trapped in a cave of their own making, and they don't know the way out. And they need a voice to call them forward. Dorothy Sayers who you might know, but she was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. And after World War II in the 1950s, she wrote a book called Letters to a Diminished Church. And she was making a case, an argument in that book for Christian, historic Christian doctrine and orthodoxy. And she argued there that the answers that doctrine and orthodoxy provide to the questions that the modern questions that people were asking, those answers were found in Christian doctrine and orthodoxy, and they were as prescient and important as ever. At one point, she begins to explain the Christian moral vices and the seven deadly sins. She kind of goes through them and explains how they manifest in the modern world. And I want you to hear what she says about uh, the sixth sin, which is acedia, which is the old kind of Latin term or sloth as we usually talk about it today. This is what Dorothy Sayers says. The sixth deadly sin is named by the church acedia or sloth. In the world, it calls itself tolerance, or we might say affirmation and acceptance today. 
But in hell, it's called despair. It is the accomplice of all the other sins and their worst punishment because it is a sin that believes in nothing. It cares for nothing. It seeks to know nothing. It interferes with nothing. It enjoys nothing. It loves nothing. It hates nothing. It finds purpose in nothing. It lives for nothing. And it remains alive only because there is nothing for which it would die for. It's a pretty profound quote. It's nihilistic. That was Israel in 1 Samuel. Where left is right and right is left and up is down and down is up. And there's no difference between going one way or the other until nothing and no direction seems to matter at all. And the Christian tradition, sloth, the first thing we think of is something maybe akin to like Jabba the Hutt, right? Just sedate and laziness, not moving at all. But really, in the Christian tradition, sloth can be inordinately busy and very active, even hyperactive. Notice that Sayer says here that sloth is the accomplice of all the other sins, enabling it and helping it. Because sloth really is the unwillingness to morally evaluate our actions. Or it's the pursuit of things that are not the most important ends, disregarding or caring for spiritual things. This is how it becomes the accomplice of other sins. See, sloth says, listen, don't worry if there's a difference between gaining wealth by exploitation or by honest labor. Really just worry about gaining wealth. But then soon, you're entrapped by greed. Sloth says, don't consider why you want success. Just go get success. But soon you find out that you are false and fake and you're not known by anybody or you're twisted by power with a train of people that you've run over behind you. Sloth says to you, don't worry about what you want or whether or not what you want is good or right. Just go get what you desire. But soon you find out that envy has eaten away your joy and it's evaporated your gratitude. Or you found that pornography and lust have so captivated your mind that it has consumed all your waking thoughts. See, Sloth says, anyway we'll do. And anyhow, and anything. Everything is and can be excused, but soon you cannot see your way between a path that's going to bring destruction or bring life. And at the end, even worse, you won't really care. That is wandering in the dark of the cave and walking into the nihilistic pool at the bottom of the cavern. So does that in some way resonate with you? Or with our present moment in history and our time, does it resonate with your present life? Now that sounds bleak and despairing. Of course it is. But look here at verse 3. Because there's very important words. Although everything is like this in the nation of Israel at that time, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, these words, just the exact same way that we had to understand that Eli's darkness and blindness is not simply physical, but also spiritual. Notice also what is said here. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. See, the lamp of God in the tabernacle was lit every night, so it would last shining through the entire night. So it's indicating that this is happening at night. But it's not just physical or defining what the time of day it was. It's also spiritual in nature. It's saying that God, despite the bleakness and the darkness of the time of the world and in Israel, God had not given up on Israel. The light of God was still burning. In other words, even though Israel was in the cave, the diver was on his way. Verse 4 here, God begins that process. He begins his call. And notice how patiently 
And persistently, he calls to Samuel, continues to call him. He calls Samuel four times in this passage. The verb here, call, even though we had an emphasis on darkness in the beginning of the passage, here 11 times this verb is used for call. God called. Eli says, you called. Or Samuel says to Eli, you called. Eli says, I didn't call. Then God calls again, again and again and again to emphasize how much God is persistently calling Samuel. The verb itself here is used in other places of the Hebrew Bible when God calls, for example, the sun, the sun, and the moon, the moon. And when he gives Adam his name, so it's not just a simple hello, calling out. This is a declaration. It's a calling to Samuel of a purpose and a responsibility. Because God has a purpose, a holy responsibility for Samuel to lead the nation of Israel out of the darkness and then eventually all the way into the kingdom of King David. So let me ask you this. This is God's call to Samuel. What is God calling you to? What is God calling you to do? If you're a Christian and we took a moment here to pause in silence, I'm fairly certain that something, if it hasn't already, would pop into your head. A responsibility that you know is yours or something that you know you need to confess and stop doing, or perhaps just a place or a face comes into your mind and you know exactly why it's there and what it means and what you are supposed to do. And you know that it's given to you by God. Well, perhaps this morning you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus, or you've been running from God. And the image that God is bringing into your mind is simply this. He's calling you to himself to entrust yourself to him to put your faith in him and embrace him. But either way, if you are a follower of Christ or if you are not, what does Samuel's calling here in 1 Samuel chapter 3 tell us or show us about what God's, calls looks, what God's call looks like and what it is? First notice in this passage that it's personal. You know, God doesn't say, someone, anyone out there in the dark, listen. No, he says, Samuel, Samuel. It's personal and direct. Look like Nathaniel here in our gospel passage. God doesn't say Nathaniel to Nathaniel, but what does he tell to Nathaniel? In verse 48 here, he talks about seeing Nathaniel underneath the fig tree. And Nathaniel's surprised. Whatever happened underneath the fig tree, we do not know. The Bible doesn't record it. No one else was probably there besides Nathaniel, but Nathaniel and Jesus knew what happened under the fig tree. And when he says to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree, he knows this is personal, intimate, and directed just to him. In the second service, we commissioned uh, uh, Wally and Angel Velez to go out to be missionaries in Japan. Angel and Wally have always loved Japanese culture and Japanese cuisine and lots of things of Japanese and wanting to go to Japan, but they had no idea that that desire was a call to go be a missionary there until the call came later. And when it did come later, they already knew this was a personal call to them by God because of their desire that had always existed long before the call came. Now, secondly, besides personal, notice that's also persistent. It keeps coming back. It keeps showing up. Samuel can't avoid it. Three times he gets up, he goes over to Eli. He's sort of wearing out the path between his bed and Eli's bed. He's busying himself, going back and forth with other things and other people. But in the quiet at night, when he's laying down or when you're in your car, for example, and the radio's not on or when you're trying to fall asleep in your bed, when you least expect it, suddenly... It returns that personal call to you. And third, this last thing, Samuel needs help understanding what's happening. 
He doesn't understand the call. He doesn't, he's confused by what he's hearing. He thinks it's Eli. He thinks it's someone else or something else. He needs the help of someone else. Eli is his mentor who has walked with him in the faith long before this. And he needs Eli's help to confirm and to clarify what God's call is in his life and what God's calling him to do. And let me just say this as an aside. Because Samuel here is being called, of course, into leadership and to become a judge in Israel. And you know, it's very easy for us individuals to assume that whenever God's call does come to us, it's going to be something that massages my ego. Oh yes, of course I'm being called to this. I must be the only one who can do it. The only one who can lead Israel out of the darkness into the kingdom of King David. But you see what happens so often is that we convince ourselves that I am called to fix the world as long as it keeps me from having to fix my home or love my actual neighbor or forgive the real person who has hurt me. See, God's call can be far more simple and far more specific and far more faithful. But notice this. When does Samuel's call that he receives from God in the dark, his epiphany in the dark, when does it move from simply hearing a word into actual response and change? And when does he begin to change? Begins here in verse 10. Notice what Samuel says. He hears from Eli what he's supposed to say, but then he finally says himself, speak for your servant hears. When he says speak, he's not giving God permission to speak to him. Really, what he's saying is to God, I am not going to well, I'm not going to move around anymore or run around or push this thought aside. When I say speak, he's saying, I'm ready to listen. I am here, ready to hear what you have to say. And then he calls himself a servant, meaning he's not only ready to listen and hear, he's ready to respond. He's ready to obey. He's ready to take on the adventure of God's purpose for him. You know, those kids in the cave in Thailand, when they heard the divers calling out to them, they weren't rescued yet. To get out of that cave, they had to submit to the divers. <laughs> they had to entrust their very lives to the divers. Because remember what happens is they get sedated, they get oxygen put on them, and they're going underwater for two hours. They are moving from what is a half-life in the cave to what feels and seems exactly like death for two hours, unconscious, underneath water, till they can come out to life. To do that, to really fully be rescued, they have to give up control. And this exactly, the place of change, is the hardest part of change, to give up control. Tim Keller said something profound once about people who try to keep Jesus, who do keep Jesus at arm's length. He's, he's talking about skeptical people who don't want to embrace Jesus by faith, but I think it's also applicable for people who are following Jesus. He says this, people know instinctively, without explanation in other words, that if Christianity is true, then they will lose control and not be able to live as they wish. So they are more than willing to accept any objections to the faith that they hear. Now, certainly it can be true for those who are not and don't want to follow Jesus, but I found it can also be true for those who are claiming to follow Jesus. Keeping Jesus at arm's length by not listening to his word, or excusing it or explaining it away in some other word or keeping it all safe and locked up on Sunday so it doesn't affect my life on Monday through Saturday so I don't lose control. It's like hearing God's word or rather hearing God's call to faith or to change and simply going, huh, that sounds like Eli if I'm honest. 
so I don't have to lose control. So how do we make that last step in change? Letting go of control and stepping into change. It's got to be more than simply knowing and understanding that we are living in the dark or that living in the dark is bad. Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish Presbyterian from the 1800s, he wrote a little pamphlet called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says there in somewhat really flowery 1800s language about change and about embracing Christ. And this is what he says. It is not enough then that we dissipate the charm by a moral and eloquent and affecting exposure of its elusiveness. We must address to the mind of his eye another subject or another object with a charm powerful enough to dispossess the first of its influences and to engage him in some other prosecution as full of interest and hope and congenial activity as the former. I'm just going to guess you have no idea what I just said, which is fine. I'm not even sure I know what I just read. It's like listening to a, you know, a movie, a period piece on Jane Austen or something. But now here's what Chalmers is saying. As human beings, we are driven by desire and affection. And we cannot change by simply being told that the thing that we desire that has our affection, that that is going to end up in a dead end that that is morally bankrupt, that it will destroy our life, even if we rationally and intellectually know it to be true and agree that that is actually absolutely true, it doesn't really change us beyond often sometimes a temporary behavioral change. Instead, what Chalmers says, when we change, we do in a new desire and affection for something that is more beautiful and more compelling, pulls us from that old desire into a new one. In other words, you don't leave the cave because you realize the cave is bad. You leave because of the light and warmth and beauty and freedom and joy underneath the sun outside the cave. That's what captures Nathaniel here in our gospel passage. Notice he begins skeptically in verse 46 when Philip tells him, we found this Messiah, the one that all the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to, the one that we've all been looking for, you and me, Philip, and, and, and Andrew and, and Peter. We found him. And Nathaniel says, oh, where's he at? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Sort of the equivalent of being like, can anything good come out of Enid, Oklahoma? You know, I hope Tim in the back there, that was for you. Or Topeka, Kansas, you know? But when Nathaniel meets Jesus here and the intimacy and personal moment that he gives Nathaniel, Nathaniel's awestruck and he responds, notice, almost exactly like Samuel does. In verse 49 here, he says, rabbi, which is teacher. In other words, he says, he's saying the same thing as Samuel. Speak. I'm ready to hear. I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to learn. But then he goes on. He says, son of God, he says, I'm ready to worship. I'm ready to see you as the ultimate thing in the universe. Then he says, king. Same as your servant, I am ready to obey. But then notice that Jesus doesn't say, good, sign up, follow me. He goes and gives him something even more beautiful. He says, you think this is good, Nathaniel? You're going to see greater things than these. Verse 51 here, he says, you will see heaven opened and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's kind of a curious image. as if Jesus is a ladder. It comes from an Old Testament story, Genesis 28, about Jacob. Jacob's on the run. His brother Esau, he's offended him, and he, his brother Esau wants to kill him, and so Jacob runs off, and he's in the wilderness. He's all by himself. He's sleeping outside. He's using a rock for a pillow. 
He's in dire straits. And while he's sleeping with this rock as a pillow, he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder. And at the top of the ladder is heaven itself with God Almighty sitting at the top. And then up and down the ladder are angels going up into the heavenly space and the spiritual world and coming down onto earth. And Jacob sees that and he says, well, this must be the gate of heaven, the entrance into heaven, and calls it that. What Jesus is saying to Nathaniel here in referencing that story is he is saying, I am the gate to heaven. Nathaniel, he's saying, I'm the link between heaven and earth. And through me, heaven itself is going to be open to you. And that's the good news of the gospel that is better, that can pull you into change. Into change. At the cross, Jesus Christ was suspended between heaven and earth. Just like this cross right here is suspended up in the air like a ladder. And there, of course, he died under the power of sin that was not his, under guilt that did not belong to him, and shame that was not his to bear. But listen, he did not just descend into that darkness and despair to do justice for our wrongs or to remove our guilt and shame. Of course, he does do that. But Jesus, in his redemption, also opens heaven to us to bring us into the very life of God himself, to wrap us into the divine life of God. It's the difference, if you will, between one of those divers in Thailand going into the cave, rescuing a kid, pulling him out, then giving him a hug and saying, goodbye, enjoy your life now out of the cave. And a diver who goes into the cave and finds an orphan who has always lived in the cave, who has heard only rumors about this life underneath the sun and thinks it might not even be true. It might even be a lie. But then that diver rescues that kid, that orphan, brings him out of the cave and doesn't simply send him on his way, but says, I'm going to adopt you and make you mine. I'm going to bring you into my very home, into my estate. Not only that, I'm going to share my life with you, share meals with you, share my joy, share my passions. Not only that, I'm going to make you my heir so that everything that belongs to me is going to be given to you. He's going to give that child the things that his heart had always longed for and wanted inside the cave, even if he didn't know what he was longing for or how to explain it. My friends, you are being called by God into his very life to share in his joy, his love, his peace, his richness, and his very glory. That's what Paul says to this church in Greece, the Thessalonian church, Thessalonica is in Greece. In 2 Thessalonians, verse 14 here, he says to this whole church, you were called, called, just like Samuel, just like Nathaniel, just like each and every Christian, you were called. And what are they called to? Through Jesus and what Jesus has done, you were called so that you might obtain or that you might have the glory of Jesus Christ himself. He has opened heaven to you into life with the eternal God, the one who is the source and the ground of all of your desires, whatever your desires might be, at the deepest level, he is what you are desiring, the one that you were made for. As Paul says here, he is the one who has loved you. For the world began, he was the one who gave himself for you. So is he not worthy of responding to his call, of letting go of control to him? He has a real purpose for you a holy calling. So as Philip says here in John, 
as we will do in a moment here at the table, as we do at worship every day, as I pray that you do for this entire year. Come and see. Come and see this God. Come and see this Jesus. And may his beauty and may his glory cause you to say back to him, speak for your servant hears. Amen. Father, we do pray and we do ask that we would be so overwhelmed by your grace and by your love and by your call that we would be responsive and by your spirit, you would enable us to respond to you, that we would respond like Samuel, that we would say that we are ready to listen, that we are ready to respond and follow you, knowing that wherever you might take us, whatever you might take us into or whatever you might take us through, that at the end for all eternity, it will be with you and life in you. So give us that grace by your spirit, we pray. Amen.